0: There's no stage at Red's Filling Station. Just a space without tables by the back wall. We play a full set of covers. Driver 8, I Fought the Law, and a bunch of ska songs. Mirror in the Bathroom, Tears of a Clown, and Red Red Wine. The space fills up with thirsty college kids. Some even dance in circles, with the beer in one hand. We're a better-than-average bar band, but not much more than that. The songs we cover are less obvious. A tasteful mixtape come to life as we muddle through a New Order song we just can't pull off. As quickly as it all begins, the gig is over, and I'm sucking down cold Miller beers at a corner table with Dwight, the bass player, and John, the drummer. They're in their 20s, and I'm barely 15. That night, the drinking age changed from 19 to 21, and I smiled like a Cheshire cat from that wobbly chair, staring out the front windows, past the neon and the familiar top 40s warble of the jukebox in that small, small town. ¶¶ Marco, and this is Songbird. Welcome to the fifth episode of the new season. As I'm sure you understand by now, we're keeping the interviews intact, and you'll hear Molly as if she was still with us. I do have a few random little gems I'll try to surprise you with down the road, but this is the last time you'll hear Molly answering the questions that I cooked up for this I guess we'll call it an informal reunion. We were just getting started. All right, so this time, we're talking about a spitball classic, Scott for Life. You're going to hear the CBGB's live version, and for the first time, you'll also hear a studio version from our Loho session. Let's get back to my conversations with Molly and Chris and Mike, the other members of spitball. Are you all right?
1: always drank wild iris rose it's wild he said he was 23 years old used to get money from the governor because he got hit car fucked up his leg
0: all right let's let's go back in time in the time machine to the more innocent getting age getting the tardis <laughs> molly i got questions about scod for life and it was such a signature song for us from the beginning And I could always count on you giving that dedication, either just before we started playing the song or somewhere in the intro, you would say, this is for my friend Carl Schneider. I have no idea who Carl Schneider was. I never asked you. So pull back the veil. Tell us, how did Scott for Life come about? Why was it so important for you to always dedicate it to Carl Schneider?
2: All right. So uh, I was a teenager. You know, I had gone up to um, Boston to study biomedical engineering because I was going to become a surgeon. And uh, I had hands steadier than uh, granite and had the math and science skills behind it. And I immediately realized that the the whole system was bullshit and I wasn't going to be a part of it. So I, I left university and I I did some more studying. You know, see, maybe I'm just studying the wrong thing. I was like, no, the whole thing is terrible. I studied biomedical engineering at Boston University, and then I took some liberal arts classes at uh, Harvard and uh, University of Massachusetts at Dorchester. And then I was like, okay, one, I hate Boston, and two, got to get the fuck back to New York, and I just need to get out, you know, the crib, as as you say when you're a teenager. I cross paths with a guy, Carl Schneider. Now, he was a... You know, this is the 80s. He was um, older than me. He was a a ska guy, big into, like, Jamaican uh, English and British ska and its roots, you know, English beat and uh, madness. And I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. And for some reason, he was like, don't worry about it. I'm going to show you how to do this. And it was kind of one of the first people that ever believed that I had some talent and could do something. I was, like, barely 18, and uh he went on to do some cool stuff he started a band up in boston called the alstonians and uh turned me on to a lot of cool music and that style of playing guitar is so prevalent and that guy couldn't play a note of guitar but he was like you need it to sound like this and i was like i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) you know and he's like just trust me, it should sound like this. And he'd make the sound with his mouth. And I'd be like, this. And he's like, now you got it. And I appreciated that so much because it's not just prevalent in that kind of upswing on a guitar sound, but also on the muting of the strings and that sort of control with if you're playing guitar right-handed, keeping the bridge of your palm on the bridge of the guitar and getting volume control whether you're doing a downstroke or an upstroke, and how important that is. And that came from somebody that didn't even know how to play guitar. So he was such a massive ska fan, and I wrote that song, and what shitty backgrounds we came from, and then be like, oh, no matter what we come from, we play this beautiful music that people can dance to, and it's all going to be fine.
0: I just always assumed he was someone that died. (laughs) (laughs) And you're so mature. So what you were doing was you were thanking the person who shined a light on this music and kind of changed your life. And me, two feet away from you on stage with my own imaginary explanation. Oh, it's about his friend that died. That's tough, man.
2: Uh, If I had dedicated a song to every friend I had that died, there'd be like 100 songs and they would all suck.
0: It's so funny that people don't ask questions more often because they think they know the answer. And there's a little voice in their head that says, Well, why ask? You already know. And the irony is, most of the time, we're completely wrong. <laughs> All right. There's a lyric from this song uh. that is definitely one of my favorites Leonard Cohen, Razor Blade Rag. How the hell did you do that?
2: You know, I, I, I math and science, I, I, I was, I love poetry. As I said, I you know, I mean, I studied science and math and was gifted at it, but I loved and had an infatuation with like literature and poetry. And I'll never understand why people would uh, spend so much money to get an education in literature or poetry. It's like, why would you need to do that? You know, for 50 cents a book, you can read some of the greatest books of all time. And I was one of those kids that would fall asleep at night you know, reading uh, Shakespeare underneath a cover, be late to school because i had been up all night, you know, and that's like, you know, in the sixth grade, and, and it continued on the rest of my life. The mathematics of poetry has always been such a beautiful balance between form and creativity. And coming up with the phonetics that drive the lyrics has always been my passion. It was always my passion back then. Used to get in fights with Mike and Chris. I was like, I put so much work into these lyrics that it matters to me. And they'd be like, yeah, but we all wrote it together. I was like... I know, but at the same time, I put so much work into this. I was like, it wasn't just the days that it took to write this. It was the years of studying to come up with the idea to even put those words together. And going back and listening to stuff like that, I'm like, that is a mathematically fantastic line. But it's also, if you you know saw it on paper, it's still resonates. If there's no music behind it, if there's no driving force behind it, it still resonates. But it's also got references. Yeah, i I'm, I'm kind of proud of that line. And there's many that I am, but they didn't take a second to write. They took weeks to write, but they also took years of research of 50-cent books and thrift store records to go, who's Leonard Cohen? You know, what's a rag? What's a, you know, Leonard Cohen was obsessed with suicide and all that kind of stuff and that is where that line comes from.
0: comes from a damn good place.
1: The pale hand reaches for another white bag The band plays the same old Lanarko and raise the blade rag Your mother wonders why it's so space out.
0: So here's the question. Yeah. I really want, like, the drummer perspective here. Yeah. Do you think because The Clash figured out how to play reggae, mm-hmm. you know, do you think, like, that was us? Yeah. Like, do you see a parallel? You know, I feel like that there
3: are respectful nods to it. I guess maybe a good example is, like... um Rudy Can't Fail or something like that where they're taking a different form of music as an inspiration to mash it up with what they're doing and I kind of feel like that's what Scott for life was and I remember struggling when people would want to come see us just struggling with how to describe the band and sometimes I would say fuck it it's a Ska band alright I'm just <laughs> going to say that just come oh okay yeah. who
0: doesn't like yeah, ska exactly
3: yeah. But I feel like that element was definitely in there, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like it was a copy. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. At least drummer-wise, I didn't feel like it was stealing something. I think we were doing it justice. Right. In a sincere way. Yeah. And if it sounded like shit, we wouldn't play it. Yeah. We weren't trying to get away with faking it. For sure. We thought we played it in our own way, in an interesting way. Another very good Molly song. It came fully formed. And I love that Molly wrote the song and knew someday in the future right. there would be these little breaks where a horn could play. <laughs> right, 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 right. Get over it. We don't have any. <laughs> oh, man.
1: For anybody that likes a little bit of old school ska out there, this is called uh, Ska for Life. <laughs> from my friend Carl Snyder, kind of, kind of goes like this. The pale hand reaches for another white bag. The band plays the same old letter, Cohen raised the blade rag. Your mother wonders why so spaced out. So yeah. now come by the river, drinking brown bag beers with the phone, suit yourself and wonder why you're there all alone, your mother wanders life, so space, now. Rose. It's wild he say he was 23 years old Used to get money from the government now Cause he got hit by car. Fucked up his leg One day his old lady, her name was Locke. She broke that bottle and she cut up her arms All the way from the ribs to the shoulder huh. Having a good time Everybody's dancing If someone asks you Are you alright? Much,
0: yeah. Scott for Life is one of our first great Molly lyric songs.
4: Totally agree. It's a story of these people that Molly knows in Boston, basically. It's very visual and very cinematic. But it's also, we were this quasi surf band and we're venturing out to something a little different. And I didn't listen to a lot of ska, but I knew what I wanted the bass part to be. I want it to move a lot. And so I love Scott for Life. It came together really well. I think we really killed that one.
0: Yeah, I think that you and Chris' rhythm section on that is just bedrock.
4: Spitball would rehearse, and then Chris and I would go out drinking. And then we're bored one day in the middle of the week when we didn't rehearse, so we'd get together and go drinking then. (laughs) So Chris and I just formed this really, really tight bond. We were really close buds, and it definitely impacted the music.
0: I just remember calling you guys Beavis and Butthead <laughs> in a very affectionate way. I know, a, I know, I know, exactly. I don't know which one of you was Beavis. I don't know which one was Butthead. I don't know. It wasn't that <laughs> right, specific. Right.
4: No, but I think it's app because we were together a lot, you know, dumb rock and rollers to a degree. But we love music, and we paid attention to what we were doing, and Chris is just a phenomenal drummer. He's got his own original style. He pushes the beat. I always describe the way Chris plays as he's leaning over his skis, you know? The beat's going forward. He's right on top of it. And I just I adapted to his style. Like, it, it worked.
0: I don't know. That's part of the magic. I think you two got each other's jokes <laughs> perfectly.
4: <laughs> and, you know, Molly was a difficult person to be in a band with. I mean, I don't, for a lot of different reasons. And so Chris and I would kind of commiserate. Mm-hmm. You know, while we're out drinking, like, that idea, that was a fucking crazy idea. What the hell? When you want to push back, any good band's going to have tension. There's not a great band that, that has no tension. And uh, even bad bands have tension. <laughs> even bad bands have tension. That's just, <laughs>
0: they that's <do>. just classic. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but yeah, that we were each other's check. Like, was that a bad idea or was that just me?
0: This is really interesting. So you guys would decompress.
4: Yeah, for sure.
0: And you had camaraderie in this safe space between the two of you, rhythm section. You guys are... Yeah. Yep. Thick and thin together. Yeah. Boy, that's fascinating. See, I could just go complain to like random girls I was dating, which is just <laughs> not a very healthy. Not the same. And well, maybe I don't it think is. they needed to hear any of this, but I decided that they did. <laughs>
1: Ghost trying to think of my bass line
4: there. I love when the uh, Are You All Right start. Yeah, the double time. (laughs) Yeah, and then I don't know if anybody's going to get this, but um, when Molly sings, Everybody's Dancing, I always tried to echo her, but the idea in my head was like the DJ who's calling people out. Ah, So ideally it would have been, Everybody's Dancing, like I wanted <laughs> yeah, that yeah. real low voice. And it was intentional. That was what was in my head. You're so conceptual,
0: Mike. Yeah, I don't know if it came across, Marco. Oh, the audience <laughs> totally got that. <laughs> You know what you're reminding me of? I was like 14, and everyone else in the band was like in their 20s. I was in high school, obviously. It was a college town, so it's all these sororities. And and what's cool is we played a lot of ska. We played English beat. Oh, wow. And we played UB40. And this is how I learned how to play ska parts, by the way. I didn't know that. Cut my teeth on, mirror in the bathroom. Could play the solo, very recognizable. Yeah. But um, we had this nutty idea. We're like... What if we played a Duran Duran song, but like a punk band? That'll blow people's minds. Okay. And all that happened is people would come up to us at the end of shows, so like, "You guys were awesome, but like, like, why are you playing that Duran Duran song? <laughs> it sounds fucking awful." We're like, "No, it's the punk version. It's conceptual." Zoom right <laughs> over their heads, or it's bad. Yeah, can, it, that,
4: that, concepts can land either way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So this is the first time our audience is going to hear a live version, and they're also going to hear a studio version. They're going to hear the Loho version of this song. So... I'm just thinking how many times we tried to record demos and how disastrous. Freaking... It was like we'd always give someone fifty bucks and say, "Why does it sound so bad?"
2: Yeah, when you have fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was a time we got one of them old school '80s tape machines and just put it in the room. We are like, "This is a demo, right?"
0: Please hire our band. Here's our demo. I think we had a real obstacle because we built up this confidence in our live show. And I think it made us overconfident that if we just walked into, I'm going to call it a studio, but let's just call it some room with instruments and microphones (laughs) that wasn't really set up very correctly. And we thought that, oh, we could do like five songs in an hour, right? And we'd walk out of there saying, oh. We nailed it. And then we would hear the tape the next day or two or whatever. And it's like, oh my God, are we really that bad?
2: There's another level of this is our fans were as broke as we were. The fact that they paid $5 to come see us play, or when we played that uh, festival at First and First where it was so many people, they didn't have any money. We didn't have any money. And th- there was a connection there. It was like, I've got a bunch of money, and I'd like to produce you guys. There was none of that. Well, thank God I eventually asked my friend Don DiNicola to, I'm going to call it
0: produce, but keep us from being idiots mostly. You know, talk um, us down from the ledge was his position. He was great. Don, incredibly talented, amazing person, though. I've had quite a few adventures with him. Yeah. And somehow we're in a actual studio in Loho Studios sort of on the edge of Chinatown and it's to like 1 inch tape as i remember there was some really good amps and some you know some good microphones there and we finally freaking laid down some tape that sounded like something there's one thing the alignment of planets that made us all you know decide to be in a band together i think it was another alignment of planets that finally put us in a situation where we got out of our own way and came up with something that we could be proud of.
2: What's the question?: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, just tell me I'm nuts or not. <laughs> no, you're not nuts. and we were only in there for a day, I think. I was think it we really were in, just one day? It was just one day. Wow, we recorded and mixed the whole thing in one day. We were there early in the morning uh, and and for us, that was like you know just before noon. And we we were there till like 10 p.m., and we got some stuff to take home with us, and we were like, wow, this is cool. And we just felt like the cat's pajamas. Now That Loho Studios, they moved, they got a building, they became one of the best studios in the city. Famous records were recorded there by those two brothers. And they, they just expected it to be another East Village band, no interest in it, and then they heard us start to play, and they were just like... I'm going to hang out here. This is kind of cool, <laughs> you know? And then they got into it. That was a great day. That was a great day in the life.
0: Absolutely. It was the ultimate compliment when they brought us into the control room and they played stuff. And I remember Vincent saying to us, "Uh, it's okay if I take this home. I want to play it for my girlfriend.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: we were like... <laughs> This is the same as the sound guy at CB's giving me the special mic. This was a sign from the universe. Something was, you know, working with these four goofballs. You look You You are You are You are You are Chris, how many times did we try to record? good demo thank you very much. well with scott for life i actually feel
3: like the live version was always better always 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 and i remember i mean we did that honeymoon killer studio we did a session with kirk too
0: right at pink crayon and there was also the chrome cranks guy I think that was the Honeymoon Killer studio place. I think. Ah, that's okay. Yeah. It's like some scruffy guy in a motorcycle jacket. It's like everybody's the same. So when we finally got to
3: Loho and did those recordings there, at least for me, for drums, I mean, that's the best drum sound I've ever gotten on any recording I've ever done, by far. It's like anytime I go to record again, I just, I go here. This is what I want. And I feel like at Loho, that was as close as we could get to the live sound. So just scruffy enough, but just together enough. Yeah. And drum-wise, the version of Lord Loves a Working Man that we did at Loho, I mean, that's my favorite recording of anything I've ever done. Wow. Yeah. It's a little bit messy, and I love it because at least, you know, the way that I play, if you're a good drummer and you're in the pocket, you're a little bit behind. That's what gives you kind of the, the groove and the real soulful feel. I can totally appreciate that. But with this stuff and the way that I play in general, I try and play a little in front. Oh, totally. To give it a little bit of energy and and to push it a little bit and to have it be a little bit off kilter and maybe at the cusp of falling apart. And at least for my kind of playing, I feel like Lord loves a working man is a great example of that. Oh, it's like you see the gears shifting. You do. That is the high-energy stuff I had only
0: ever heard at live shows. Well, it's because we didn't do it to a click track. I know. <laughs> like everyone tells you you have to record music to That's right.
3: to sound human you know I, of course i slip here and there and sometimes i start in one place and end faster my justification has always been there's a great quote from charles mingus where he says don't think of the beat as a point think about it as a circle and you're trying to hit inside of
0: that circle all right hey if he said it you know, then it's okay. <laughs> Any Mingus quote is appropriate <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, do you remember Jack Michelin, yes. my friend, the crazy yeah. B- who introduced us yeah, he read like a poem before we went on. I think it was a CB show or a Continental show. Yeah, right, show. right, right. So Jack Micheline and Mingus did shows together. And Mingus gave Micheline the Revolt and Poetry Award at some crazy event. <laughs> Good in the, Lord. Know, oh, my God. Late 50s, early 60s. Wow. Yeah, that's how I met Jack, because I wanted Mingus stories. And they're, they're like, oh, yeah, that guy's got Mingus stories.
3: Oh, man. To get back to Scott for Life, another great Molly song. I you know, I don't go back and listen to this stuff a lot, but that's one that I do go back and listen to. I feel like it's got a lot of great energy. You are bellowing on that one like crazy.
0: Spitball recorded so many shitty demos, Yeah just a colossal waste of money and energy and time and every time we walked out of one of those sessions we're like oh yeah we nailed it i know and then we would hear the tape we're like we suck you know it's a learning process as you go
3: figuring out the studio and what you want to sound like you know i just love those loho
0: recordings so much and that was a friend of yours who was producing it right I pulled the trigger. I said, guys, let me bring someone to like guide us through this insanity this time. Yes. Yep. Who picked the studio?
3: I don't remember. That was over on like Astor Place or something, wasn't it?
0: No, no, no. It was down. It was below Houston. I want to say where Lafayette splits. Yeah. Right. Where that taco place is on the corner now, it was like right yes. on the west side of I guess it's Lafayette, you yeah, call it. Yeah, right. It's weird because it splits right there. Yeah.
3: Cleveland, Cleveland.
0: place in Lafayette.
3: Yes, right. I mean, I feel like um that, that is the secret. You know, you get a good producer who you somewhat are going to surrender to. Yeah. And I remember the um yeah, the honeymoon killer stuff. I felt like the performances were great, you know. See, I had a very different experience.
0: Yeah. I remember Kirk. Just, like, hating me. Oh, that was Pink Crayon. That was the other place. Ah! Honeymoon Killers. I think they put, like, one mic in the middle of the room when we played insanely loud. Yes. It was like a rehearsal mic. Yeah. But I remember the Pink Crayon sessions of Kirk pulling Molly aside, saying, this horn player sucks. You can't call that a solo. What the fuck is that guy playing? And I felt very naked and, like, hung out to dry. Like, I'm not welcome here.
3: Oh, that blows.
0: I knew... Kirk was crazy about Molly, and the rest of us were like part of the package. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I mean, everything's hard to record. But I have learned on my own, recording horn parts at home, it's fucking hard to record a saxophone correctly. It's very easy to make it sound like a bad marching band instrument, you know? Right, 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 yeah. And... What Don did in Loho with my horn, it's so fucking cool. He put two mics. Mm -hmm. He put a very kind of shitty bullet mic that's sort of like a harmonica mic, which was a condenser, a very basic microphone. And then he put a ribbon mic, which has a very sexy top end. It kind of cuts off a lot of the top frequencies, and it's pretty velvety sounding. So it's not the most punchy sounding mic. And then he mixed those in stereo. Right, right, right. So it's like grit and silkiness. Right, right. And what's interesting is the ribbon mic is incredibly sensitive. It gets all the breath and all the texture, but it is not the most dynamic microphone. Now I understand this stuff because I'm trying to record shit right. at home. Back in the day, I was like, you turn it right. on. <laughs> like, is right. it on? Is it, turn- it on? It's a microphone. You cool, it's on. turn it on and you play towards it or something. <laughs> <laughs> don't knock it over oh, it's okay put it back <laughs> from a horn player perspective loho was the first time i was miked anyway correctly yes
3: yes and you know i remember clearly that was the first place that i had ever seen he miked the front and the back of the kick drum mm-hmm. which i had never seen or even heard of before and we tuned the drums yeah and there was just this killer sustain on the crash cymbal
0: yeah, that's the way they deal with the overheads, as I understand. Yeah. The way to mic drums, some people do it with seven yeah. mics, some people do it with three. Right. There are so many freaking recipes. Yeah. A lot of it has to deal with the room that it's yeah. in as part of that recipe, right. though. So it's not sure. just put mics here. It's, oh, the room's got a ceiling this high. Yeah, sure. It's in the corner. The baffle's here. Okay, then do right. this. Right, right. Yeah. Now we learn this like 30 years <laughs> later. <laughs> So basically, how did we make a good recording? By dumb fucking luck. Yeah,
3: right, right, (laughs) right. I I, I think it was, yeah, by dumb luck and the right
0: guy. Yeah. Well, honestly, Don loved us. Yeah. I mean, Don was my friend. Of course, he liked what I was doing. I said, Don, come to a show. Yeah. Oh, of course I'll come. Right. Great. But then he's like, oh, I like the whole thing. Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Oh, you need help? I'll help you guys. Yeah. You guys need help. We need (laughs) help. (laughs) We need a lot of help. Yes,
3: yes, yes. We've tried twice already and we failed. How can we be the most popular band in the East Village and not have a demo? Have a de- and the only demo we have is live from CB. <laughs> Which did sound good, though. The recordings from the board were awesome. But even if you had a completely full house, it got zero crowd noise.
0: Yeah, the crowd mic is missing.
3: Yeah, so it sounds like you played the performance of your life and then you kind of hear afterwards...
0: All right.
2: Crickets.
3: (laughs) Yeah. One guy in the back. Like a Simpsons character. (laughs) Yes. Your guys are good. Worst show ever. Play (laughs) Freebird.
1: This one's from my friend Carl Snyder. It's called Scott Blake. It goes like
0: this. Chris, I got one last question for you. Yes, sir. It's a pretty deep one, though. Yeah. I'm throwing a real curveball at you. Mm -hmm. When I hear Scott for Life Mm -hmm. and I hear that studio recording, I feel like this is the band coming into its own. What do you think? I do. I feel like all the parts have started to gel.
3: All the stuff that we had been fucking around with, we were able to kind of bring it in the studio and get it down. That's when what I had been hearing in the rehearsal rooms that kind of some of the magic that had happened there, that's when I heard it coming back to me in a recorded version.
0: I felt like it was a really invisible moment and you don't really realize it's happening. Yes, There's an aftershock. I especially remember listening to those board yeah. mixes on those amazing, remember those I Yuri do. speakers? Yeah. And Vincent's like, You guys want me to play it loud on the big speakers? <laughs> <laughs> We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, play it, play it, play it loud, play it loud. <laughs> it's never going to sound yeah. like this ever right. again. Yeah. There was something about hearing it playing back. Holy yeah. shit, that is yeah. us. Right. That's what it's like to be in the yes. audience when we yes, play. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Yes absolutely it's an out-of-body experience that can't be yeah. us but it is us right right i feel
3: like you're 100 percent right on and i feel like now whenever i decide to go back to listen to stuff that was recorded by the band and whatever version that's the stuff i listen to I, I guess when i think of the band that's what i think of
1: This one's for my friend Carl Snyder. It's called Scott it goes like this. Your pale hand reaches for another white bag As the band plays the same old letter and raise blade rag Your mother wonders why you're so spaced out So spaced out your river freaking brown bag, beer with a phone. You shoot yourself and you wonder why you're there all alone. Your mother wonders why you're so spaced out. You're so spaced out. Got hit by a car. That fucked up his leg. One day, his old lady, her name was Locke, she broke that bottle and she cut up her arms all the way from the wrist to the shoulder. I say, she was a
0: Possible that before the LoHo demo, just we weren't good enough yet. Yeah. And it just showed us that. I would say this when we played in front of an audience, it's sort of natural to perform a certain way. But when you walk into an empty room and it's just the four of you, when it's a rehearsal, it's a rehearsal. But when it's a studio, we really were falling flat on our face consistently without an audience. Every time I heard a recording
4: of our song, I realized what I could do better or how I could change and make my part better. And so I I think it was good for us to record as much as we did or tried to, because it really helps me think through the song. And when you're playing it live, it's just about the energy and matching that crowd like you were talking about. I am not a perfectionist, but when we were recording, I wanted to be a perfectionist. And that's not good. You got to let it go.
0: I think this is a great example of the fact that we were 22 years old Mm -hmm. and we weren't mature enough to understand what muscles you need as a musician in a studio. That only having some perspective being older, do you understand? Nah, you got to be this way when it's just this carpeted room and a mic staring back at you. It's a very different mode to play that song because it's not just the same song you're playing, it's you're in a freaking museum exhibit playing the song that's going to be the record of it for forever
1: (laughs) but at the same time
0: you have to throw all of that out the window and just be you and be authentic it's like you're standing there in the hospital in a surgical gown it's a very antiseptic cold you're not getting anything back from the room right right and that's key and i think it took us a while to get around that we
4: did have trouble recording now that you mention it and i do think that that was a big part of it because you got to be you plus you got to put that energy into the recording but you can't force it and do it overdo it and you can't just underdo it it's a real tricky thing i would put a lot of that on the producer and i'll tell you this after you were out of the band and we did this recording at studio twist um night bob produced it Night Bob's main job was to keep us at ease, and he told us stories about all the bands he worked with, Aerosmith, Night Ranger, Ted Nugent, and they're funny fucking stories, and we were just relaxed. So I do think the producer really helps.
0: You're making me think of this thing that Joe Henry said, and he's such an amazing Mm -hmm. producer. He said, my job is every time the person sings the song, they have to know that I'm listening. I'm not like looking at dials. I'm not like checking something on the phone. They know I'm listening. They can mm-hmm. either see my face on the other side of the window on every single take, or I could even be in the room with them. Yeah. Sing to me. I'm listening.
4: Yeah, but that's nerve wracking because now you're seeking this person's approval and that means you're,
0: you're trying harder. Oh no, he's just saying, I see you, I hear you. Yeah, You're not like singing into this microphone, hoping it goes well. You don't have to sing to this imaginary audience that's not there. You don't need to stare at this microphone and like spill your guts with nobody watching. I'm watching. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. What happens is people get really in their heads, especially for singers, and they're doing this very important song and they have all this pressure they're putting on themselves. Absolutely. He kind of erases that. He's like that is the most important job of the producer.
4: Yeah. So is that your experience now? You know, you're older and you just did a recording. Was the producer the difference maker for you?
0: I'm the producer. <laughs> ah. <laughs> My bad. (laughs) No, it's a great question because it sounds like there's a producer. I will say this. I completely compartmentalize. And one of the first things I learned was don't record with headphones on. Hmm. Because the problem is you perform. And I don't want to perform. I just want to sing the song. Yeah. I want you to be in the room with this guy singing this song in this intimate, close way. Because I'm not trying too hard. I didn't discover it by accident. I kind of figured it out. And I do know other people that work this way. It does create a couple of challenges, but the flip side is mm-hmm. you just took away the greatest obstacle to making a great performance. Yeah.
4: Take that away. That makes sense.
0: I'm thinking about that old chestnut. Just be yourself and how that can be such a tall order. When you take the stage awkward and shy or juiced up on adrenaline, isn't that true to who you are in that moment? Can we ever be anyone else? Well, we can act. We can pose. And we can try too hard. And we can be inauthentic far too easily. And then I think of when you walk into a studio and how you need to be a different version of yourself. The more confident one. The one that doesn't need to prove anything. The one that on a perfect day is ready to make a tiny bit of history. Maybe it's like being a stage actor and a film actor. Different performances. One fleeting. One made under a magnifying glass both looking to pull that old magic trick to catch lightning in a bottle but the lightning is you All right, Songbirds. This is the place where I tell people where they can find us. We're on all your favorite podcasting platforms, and even ones I bet you've never even heard of. Or you can just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place where you'll find the show notes. If you're interested in the music I make, just search for Martin Ruby. That's the band name on Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes, and the rest. Or just go to martinruby.com. Sisyphus, the first single from my new album, Jacob and the Angel, it's out now, and it's picked up by some great playlists, and there's more on the way. Next time on Songbird, a Bill Withers cover, a dynamic duo, and a conversation about pockets. Thanks for listening. Songbird is produced by Bittersweet Content.